to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. I'm here today with author and parenting expert, Dr. Laura Markham, a trained clinical psychologist who earned her PhD at Columbia University. Dr. Markham has worked extensively as a parenting coach, as well as a writer, speaker and advocate for a parenting style that emphasises connection and empathy over discipline. She's also the founder of the hugely popular parenting website, ahaparenting.com, that provides insights and advice to parents of children from babyhood to the teen years, and is based on the idea of an aha moment that she describes as a lightning flash of insight, when suddenly we see things from another perspective and everything has the potential to be different. Her books include Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids, How to Stop Yelling and Start Connecting, and Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life. She has two grown-up children and currently lives in New York with her husband. Dr. Laura, I'm so excited to speak to you today and thank you for being on the podcast. It's really thank great you to have you. Thank for inviting me. I'm delighted to meet you. So um, I'm really familiar with your work. I've been a fan for a long time. And when I discovered your website, ahaparenting.com, I really, it was like a revelation because I was really hoping that something like that was out there. Because I had found the, the kind of ideas that I had about parenting, I didn't feel that they were the mainstream. And I always felt a bit like I was being judged <laughs> for my approach to bringing up my kids. And then when I found your website, I was like, oh, it's, this is like what I wanted to hear, you know. Um, and it was, so, it was so reassuring. It was like, it was like someone was giving me a hug and saying, you know, it's okay, it is difficult. And just keep saying, you know, to your kids, I'm sorry, you know, that it didn't work out very well today. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was brilliant. I really, really um, have found your work to be very helpful over the years, your books and your website. I'm so glad (laughs) I do this. Brilliant. Um, It's, it's, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. So, So this podcast is about tenderness. And um, at the beginning, I like to ask the guest to share a moment of tenderness with us, because the idea is that essentially our lives are made up of all of these little stories that are stitched together. And I, I believe that when we shine a light on scenes where we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, moments when we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us. It's as though we're awakened to greater sort of meaning and purpose. And that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. So is there a moment from your life that you could share with us? 
Well, there are probably many. I, I guess since we're talking about parenting, I'll share one with my, that happened with my daughter and that I think every parent listening will recognize. Fantastic. I had um, guests coming for dinner and I discovered I was out of garlic. And I sent my 11-year-old up to the corner to get some garlic. Now, I live in New York City, but she walked past that grocery store on her way to middle school every day. And it was still light out. And uh, it was only, you know, three quarters of a block away. But as I'm chopping vegetables, she sort of didn't come back. And she didn't come back. And you know how you start to go a little bit into a state of alarm, even though it's below consciousness. You don't actually know there's a threat, but some part of you is worried and you start to get more tense and anxious and you don't quite know. You're not really, I was focused on the clock and the vegetables and the, where's the garlic? And, you know, not so much the fact that I was getting more tense and anxious by the moment as she wasn't walking in the door. But she did walk in the door. She burst in dropped her jacket on the floor and yelled, mom, can we have a kitten? And I was like, already tense and anxious and no, we can't have a kitten. Your dad's allergic to cats. You know that. Where's the garlic? And she said, oh, but mom, they're giving away kittens in front of the grocery store. And she proceeds to describe every kitten in the box, the black one with the white feet and the calico. But she's doing it in this voice that's um, very revved up, but also very whiny. You know how they can get under your skin when they whine? Like when they're three, they do that pretty often. They can still do it at 11. And so here she is, but mom, and and I'm already somewhat tense and anxious and behind on my recipe and watching the clock and not really fully present in the moment, not really listening to her. And I'm saying, no, no cat. We have a dog. Where's the garlic? And she's saying, oh, and then there was the gray one, (laughs) you know. And finally, I'm crossing the room to get something. And I tripped on her jacket. And I snapped. Alice, stop going on about those cats. Pick up your jacket and give me the garlic. And she glared at me, put her hands on her hips, and shouted at the top of her lungs, Get your own garlic. I'm not your servant. That's amazing. At which point I realized I was doing everything wrong. And, you know, I had a choice to make. She was dysregulated. I was dysregulated. I was ready to slide down that slippery slope onto the low road of parenting and start yelling and send your, you know, go to your room until you can be civil. Don't you speak to me that way. And, you know, when I was her age, if I had said something like that to my stepdad, I would have been slapped across the face. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so certainly as she screamed at me, I was like, you know, starting to. Yeah, you can feel it in your body, can't you? Yes, yes, you just, and as I did that, I, I looked at her and I just thought, we don't need to do this this way. Mm-hmm. And I did what I call stop, drop, and breathe. Stop what you're doing. I literally turned off the stove and walked over to her. Drop your agenda. My agenda was just to get the garlic and get, my, get ready before the guests walked in the door. I dropped my agenda just for that moment and breathe, stop, drop, mm. and breathe. And I just breathed 
a few deep breaths and I just looked at her and she looked sort of stricken standing there. Clearly she was embarrassed and ashamed and mm. felt like she crossed the line, but she was also just mad. And I just took another deep breath and I just purposely let it go, you know, mm. choose love here, choose love, just switch gears. Mm. I think these moments that you're talking about, they're moments of grace, but we have to be willing. Mm. We have to be willing. It's and true. Right. We have to open ourselves to it. And so I just took a deep breath and I said, oh, sweetie, you know, we don't talk to each other that way in this house. And she said, but you were talking to me that way. Mm. So I had to take another deep breath. Yeah, say, you're right. You're right. You're yeah. right. I was. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. No one deserves to be yelled at. Mm. You didn't deserve to be yelled at. Mm. So that's pretty good, right? So far, so good, right? I calmed yeah. down, I connected, I apologized, except here's, watch this. But, I said, but, that you ruin everything when you say but. <laughs> I said, but, you weren't listening to me, I said. And she said, you weren't listening to me either, which was true, right? It's true. I was like, yeah. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you're right. Mm. You're, and, I, and I said, you're right, sweetheart. I wasn't listening to you. I was... I was in a hurry. I was feeling pressured. I, I was worried when you were gone. And then I was all anxious when you walked in the door. And when you walked in the door, you weren't listening to me. You were anxious too. And you're, you're, you were just going on and you weren't listening to me. And you were, did something happen on your walk? And she said, of course, something happened on my walk. They're going to kill those kittens. And she burst into tears oh. and hurled herself into my arms and just sobbed. Oh. So all the anger just melted away, hers and mine, you know, because she felt safe enough to, once I had stopped escalating, she felt safe enough to show me all this. And she just sobbed. And I, I just, I didn't say, no, they won't. I just said, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. And I kept breathing. And I kept trying to not look at the clock or at the snot on my shoulder. <laughs> and finally, she's blowing her nose and she says, um, Mom, I'm sorry, I was rude. It's just, you and Dad raised me to be a good person. And I just wish there was something I could do to help those kittens so they don't kill them. And I had just read this article about that morning about what happens when children feel powerless. When we, when they encounter unfairness in the world, mm. what you might even think of as evil, you mm. know, kids being put to death, um, a hurricane, a war, um, mm. racism. There are so many things that children begin to learn about that are so um, devastating to their sense of justice in the world and their belief in the world as a safe and good place. When they make these discoveries, if we basically give them the message that there's nothing they can do, and nothing we can do, they become cynical. They mm -hmm. become embittered. And by the time they're teenagers, they're angry mm -hmm. and they're, they lose faith mm -hmm. in humanity, mm -hmm. in, in the possibilities of change mm -hmm. in us. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. If we can give them some hope, they, they hang on to that and it shapes them mm -hmm. and they become empowered to stand up for what they want and believe needs to happen to make the world a better place. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm looking at her and thinking, well, what could I say? And I just said, 
I wonder, which is a great way to begin when you don't know what to say. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if maybe there is something you could do to help the kittens. I mean, short of adopting one. And she said, oh, like she'd never, like if she didn't adopt one, what else was there, right? And she looked at me and she said, oh, I could, well, I could donate my allowance and I could stand on the corner to help give, you know, talk to the people to give them away. And you know, those towels you were going to make into rags, I could bring those up for the bottom of the cages. And so she's all of a sudden, brain, she's, she's thinking chance. for herself. Yeah. Yes. yes, she's thinking for herself. She's solving her own problem because she's had a chance to actually be heard have her feelings empathize with, have a space for her to work through those feelings. And I didn't do anything. All I did was be there, be present. And she's brainstorming. And then all of a sudden she gets this, her eyes get really big and she looks at me and she says, oh, mom, I I didn't even make it into the store because of the cats. I, I completely forgot your garlic. I'm so sorry. I'll be right back. And she dashes out of the house. So... That's my moment. Oh, that's, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And it's just, it's made me think of so many things. It's, it's very familiar yes. <laughs> for me as a, as a parent of three children. And um, I think one of the things that really comes up for me is this capacity of empathy and this saying sorry to your children. And I think that was a real aha moment for me. And for some reason, I used to find that so difficult with my kids. I used to find it so hard to say sorry. And I remember kind of realizing that maybe I just need to apologize for this thing that can take responsibility, you know, that, you know, I I should have done something differently and they've pointed it out. And as soon as I did it, the whole energy changed you know, between us. And it's almost as though I saw, I, you know, I've seen it with all of them just soften, you know, like in that moment where that you're about to have a conflict and then you just, it's like you, you know, you make that decision like you did. I think I just need to say sorry, or I'm sorry that you're finding this so hard. And when I started sort of parenting like that, it, yeah, everything changed, everything changed, but it, it um it took it it took me quite a few years <laughs> actually to get there and yeah. um i i just i'm really fascinated with why it's so difficult to be a calm parent it it really fascinates me and i think it is i've always believed that it's the ultimate approach you know, with kids. And I, I, I see that it's the best thing and I see that it works, but it's, it, it's tremendously difficult. And I think this is, you know, this is what people say it's hard. And I think it's all about that thing of presence and just how hard it is to be present and to be calm in life as we know it, because the life that most of us lead is not is not calm and it's not conducive to presence. So I think that what we need to do is try and cultivate that in ourselves as individuals before we can go into the parent-child relationship. And I think that's the bit that maybe 
people need to to hear that they need to kind of start to try and approach themselves in a different way. I think that it's really hard once we're in a state of, I I said state of emergency before, Mm. you know, we, we experience the world, human minds perceive the world as threatening all the time. You know, our three-year-old, it's a threat when she Mm. says, I want a new mommy. That's not a threat. That's her trying to get her way and Mm. telling you how mad she is and how frustrated. It is not actually a threat. Mm. It's a threat when someone else takes the parking space we wanted. It's a threat when our, you know, we're running behind because we misplanned our day and the kids are getting cranky in the back of the car. You know, it's so easy for the human mind to perceive a threat. And when you're threatened, what happens? Well, your body goes into a state of emergency. Mm. It says, okay, fight, flight, or freeze. Maybe there's a tiger here. And Veda doesn't know it's the three-year-old. You know, it's pumping out the adrenaline and the cortisol and all the stress hormones and neurotransmitters. So I think it's hard to be a calm parent because you're in this intimate relationship with someone who does not have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, who has their own opinions about life and what they want and really does not understand why it's important for you to get to your meeting, you know, (laughs) and they, you know, they, um, they're, they don't like to be pushed around, right? Mm -hmm. It's no human wants to be pushed around. They want a sense of agency and yet it's our job to move them through the schedule of the day. Mm. You know, okay, now it's time for lunch. Now it's time for dinner. Clean up the toys, brush your teeth, get on your shoes. There's a constant never ending stream of control issuing from us, the parents to the child. And the child is like, you know, if they feel very connected to us, they forgive us and they're willing to try to go along with us because they love us and depend on us and all that. But but it's not what they want. And the strong willed ones especially get their hackles up when we're pushing them around. I, I think it's very hard given that situation for there not to be conflict. Every human relationship has conflict, right? And when you're in that setup with a child, naturally there will be some conflict. And then we experience that as a threat. So I think for all of us parents, if we can just notice, if we can be present enough to notice, you know, like I did with my daughter, okay, on the slippery slope here, you know, okay, it's not really a threat that the kid won't put his shoes on or brush his teeth or eat his dinner or whatever else we feel like we're getting all agitated about, we can stop, drop our agenda, take a Mm -hmm. breath, have a do-over. You know, we don't have to get dysregulated here. And, you know, when we do that, it's amazing how much more calm our children are. Yeah, I see that as well with my kids. When I, you know, when I manage to be calm and I, I have that energy and I bring that to an interaction, they copy that you know they mirror that and the same with you know my if I'm anxious and stressed that gets mirrored as well and it's 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 hard when you see that coming back at you and you're like that's me um but you know you when you think about it that's biologically determined yeah yeah. yeah they have to be able to look at us to know you know if they see something that might be a threat here's a you know a puppy they don't know if that puppy's a threat or not. And they look at us and we're smiling. Say, oh, it's a puppy. They're going to be nice with the puppy. If it's a tiger, we're going to go, no, it's a tiger. And they're going to run, you know. Yeah. So they, 
they're reading us yeah. all the time and taking their cues from us. If we're acting like it's an emergency because mm. we're having a hard day, mm. they're going to feel like it's an emergency too. And then they're in fight, flight, or freeze, which means everybody's dysregulated at the same time. Mm. And that's not a good situation to be in. I've been in that situation and I don't want to, I don't want to be in it again. <laughs> yes. Um, there's, oh, there's so much there that I want to sort of unpick. Um, I, I wanted to sort of start off by talking about sort of the main themes in your work. Um, one of the things I've read you talk about and I've seen you writing about before is intimacy. I think that's very interesting um, in the parent-child relationship. Why is, I mean, it might sound obvious, but can you just explain to our listeners why intimacy is so important and what do you mean when you talk about intimacy? Hmm. Well, intimacy is hard to define, but we know it when we feel it, right? It's that you feel it in your heart, you feel it in your, in your, your eyes soften, you, you just open emotionally, right? And it's that close connection with another human being that opens you to something larger, right? To some people think of it as the divine, uh, but whatever it is, it's bigger than both of us. Mm. And it happens. We can, we can tap into it in nature. We can tap into it, some of us in church, we can tap into it in different ways. But we, when we're singing with a choir, there's all kinds of research on that we tap into something greater. Um, but we also do it one-on-one -on -one with another human being. Mm. When we really let down our guard and we're just fully present with them, that's intimacy. And it's, um, it is a baby's natural state. When they're born, they come here ready to connect. They're not guarded yet. They're looking for intimacy. I remember when my firstborn was very young, maybe, you know, um, a year old, but old enough to have a relationship, but not to be very verbal, a young, very young toddler. I remember him looking in my eyes with the most loving, open gaze that it um, it was hard for me to stay present and meet it. And I was, I, I had, to, the first time it happened, I looked away and I was embarrassed and I felt like I'd failed him. Mm. And I thought, why did I look away? And I realized that I had never had anyone look at me that way. I don't know that my parents were able to. They were products of their time. Oh, that's amazing. And, right? And even my husband who I, had a good relationship and I think now have a great relationship with, I don't know that even though we had been married for a couple of years by then, I don't know that I had ever shared a deep moment that deep with him. I think it was something I had never experienced before. And I think if we're open, our children can do this for us. Oh my gosh, that's so incredibly beautiful. I mean, I think you're talking about deep, deep connection but I think you're also talking about, it's almost like you saw the, the true inner being of your son without all the layers that get added on as we, as we move through the world. You know, we put this armor on and it's 
it can be very difficult for us to really be our true self which I believe is there when we're born I think who we are is there and that's why it's I find it so it's incredibly moving when you have a baby and you see you look in their eyes and you and you see that's who they are and I find it that's been one of the most astonishing things for me about becoming a parent was realizing that that person they are when they're born is who they are forever. Like it's who they are at their core. And I still see it. My eldest is 15 and I still see in her eyes who she was at that moment when she was born. And that is such a powerful thing. And that I think, but I think you have to be able to see that. I mean, that's, Mm. I think, also, I think it's fascinating, like you said, you didn't, maybe didn't ever experience that with your parents. Why? Why do we find all of this so difficult? And what do we need to do almost as a collective you know, to, to kind of find this tenderness in ourselves and move into a space where we can experience intimacy more often with each other and actually with ourselves as well? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on self-compassion recently and it it changes everything it changes mm-hmm. how you show up with other people but I yes. think that's where the work has to begin because we can't be compassionate towards others until we can have compassion for ourselves and actually I think people find that really really difficult you're right I think um, the research on how children can change you shows that even when you have had a hard childhood and you have come out of it with a with some challenges to being tender to yourself your children can not always but can evoke that tenderness and that love and that can be transformative it's actually if we can give love to our children it transforms our ability to love ourselves. But the flip side is also true that often we can't give that love to our children until mm. we can love ourselves. So I think working on both fronts at once mm. is, um, you know, the, the way to healing mm. for ourselves. Mm. And you're right. If you can't, you know, so many, I talk to parents all day, every day. And I hear so often, I was talking to a mother, she's pregnant, she already has some children, several children. And she was talking about how resentful she felt toward her children. I know this mom adores her children, but of course she feels resentful. She's just empty. You know, she's just wrung out, about to have a baby. She's not feeling very good physically. Her children are, you know, challenging and she's worn out. And I, I, if she can just take care of her, mm. she, she will have something to give her children and she'll be able to restore her connection to her children. But it's almost like a she has to start with herself mm. to be compassionate with herself. She was judging herself for feeling resentment. Like, no, of course you feel resentment. Don't, you know, there's no reason to judge yourself. You love your children. Start with you, take care of you. When you have a full cup, you know, I think of it almost as, this is what I think of it for myself. I discovered this image many years ago in meditation. It's that when I am parked on sort of the, the eternal spring, I, I overflow. 
mm. with love and goodness and, you know, compassion for everyone. When I'm buffeted by circumstance, which happens daily, right? Yeah. Um, when I get too busy, when I get distracted, when I'm not present, mm. I'm not on that spring. Mm. And it's easy to, to run dry and to run out of what we might actually want to be able to share mm. for, with others or even for ourselves. Mm. So I think that work to bring that work to bring myself back to that spring, mm. um, you know, it is, it is the most important. The most, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's those difficult feelings. And then it's the thoughts about those feelings. Like, you know, I'm feeling like I'm completely spent and I don't have anything left to give. What kind of parent am I that I feel this, you know? And I actually think so much of that comes from society. And this is something that I really feel strongly about that I feel there needs to be almost like a change in the story we tell about what it means to be a parent, because I have often felt judged. And whether that was true, whether that was just me creating stories in my mind, or whether, you know, someone really was judging me, it doesn't really matter. But I do feel that the job of being a parent is a good parent is tremendously difficult and it's not necessarily in the doing it's the being part that's difficult and I think that that's almost not common knowledge I I don't think a lot of people really understand that or people are very quick to judge or they have ideas about what a parent should do and if something doesn't work out, what what parents done wrong, you know, and the, 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 the part a parent has played in things not working out. And I think if there was more kindness and empathy towards parents and more understanding of, you know, what goes in to being a parent, because, you know, it uses up so much energy. <laughs> um, if there was more awareness of that, then, maybe parents wouldn't be so hard on themselves. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I think our society does not support parents. You're right. It, it judges parents. And if we did support parents, it would make parenting a lot easier. I, I think we've come from a, you know, we're as humans are still evolving, you know, we're, we're engaged in, in a, well, in some great experiments, you know, where we're right now, there is an experiment about what is strength, you know, is strength being tough, the way that, you know, maybe my parents generation thought, or is strength about um, integrity and connection, tenderness, right? Is that what strength is actually? Is it holding hands all together? you know, as humans mm. for what we believe and what can be transformative, right? As opposed to having to win uh, by being tough. You know, there's a whole, mm. there's a whole experiment about cooperation versus competition that humans are engaged in right now. And so I love that you talk about tenderness. I think we don't value tenderness as a society. No. We don't value children. No. We don't value children because they're not tough. They're naive. They're tender. They're tiny. They're, you know, they're not strong yet, whatever. I, we don't value children. 
individually we value our children, but as a society, society. you know, if you look at what, at least what Western culture, not all, I mean, I think in Norway, maybe they value their children more, but I think, you know, at least in the United States, which I'm most familiar with, Mm. I think we don't, you know, if you look where the money goes, it doesn't go to support children, uh, right? It doesn't go to schools. It doesn't go to, um, to what children need. And when you don't value children, you don't value their caregivers. You don't value their parents. And again, we don't, value women. Women are valued to the degree they're in male roles in corporations or government. They're not really valued for being teachers or caregivers or raising children. And we don't see it even as a, as an important and challenging, you know, the pe- the children we're raising today are the people of tomorrow. They will, they will be what, the, who they are is what the planet will be, but we're not seeing that and valuing that. No. No, I think you're so right. I mean, just the fact that, you know, maternity leave, paid maternity leave doesn't really exist in the US. And I I just think you're absolutely right. I mean, children aren't valued, I suppose, because they're not a commodity. They, you know, they don't, they don't bring anything to the, you know, economic system. In fact, they get in the way, you know, so, and, and everything is about, is about that. So I think, yeah I think it it's a it's a problem and yeah you look at countries like Sweden and you think how amazing it is that they do really value parental leave and they actually make you know make room for that uh they have joint parental leave um but yeah I think I do feel like something needs to change and I think something is going to change I'm trying to be hopeful here it it might be gradual um and it's going to happen, I think, over quite a long period of time. But I think we're going to move in that direction as we have more awareness of all of this, um, thanks to you and, and your work. Um, I think there's a, there are a lot of us working across the planet to transform the way we relate to children. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely think we can just look at statistics on child abuse, on sexual abuse, on all kinds of things that are actually different now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we... We listen to children. We believe children more, more likely, you know, now than we used to. Um, and so I do agree with you. I'm actually quite hopeful about the human experiment. Yeah, no, I am too. Um, I just wanted to go back to some of the, the themes that we started talking about in your work. Um, one of them, I things that I find very interesting is control and why as parents, we we often have this, this instinctive need to want to control our children rather than I think coach, which is the term that you use. And again, I'm very interested in why it's so difficult for us to do that, to to coach. Why is it more instinctive for us to kind of go in with the controlling sort of um, approach until we become conscious and we realize sort of what we're doing? Well, when we experience a threat, immediately we click into, as I said, fight, flight, or freeze, which is a very controlling kind of a, you know, you're revved up. You're, you may not be yet fighting or running or anything else, but you're ready to control the situation. And, you know, it's the opposite of tenderness. It's the opposite of empathy. We stop seeing the other person mm. as someone we love and we start seeing them as someone to be controlled. Mm -hmm. I would even say there's a parallel that people listening might recognize. You know, if you're, 
friend comes to you and your friend says, you know, I've been thinking, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to do what I believe in. And I'm going to, you know, um, I'm going to do what I was born to do. And they, they describe this big change. And you say, wow, go you. What a courageous thing. Well done you to come up to the, you know, you, you really encourage your friend. If your partner, your husband or wife comes to you and says the exact same thing, you know what you say? You must be crazy. We need your income. What are you talking about? Right? You, you aren't interested in what's going to make your partner's heart sing at that moment. You're just feeling the threat of, oh no, if they make a change, it affects me in a big way. Oh no, you can't do that. That's a threat to me. So we try to control them, right? And when you think about it, children affect us all the time, every day in big ways, right? You know, are we going to have a pleasant evening or is it going to be full of meltdowns? Are we, are they going to cooperate with us on this? Are they going to reflect well on us? We're at the grocery store. They're, they're being difficult at the grocery store. Everyone's staring at us or worse yet, we're at our mother-in-law's. <laughs> Same thing. She's staring at us. So, you know, we're constantly in a position where we feel we, that there's a problem here with our child. And if we can just control them, it will not get out of hand. But of course, the minute we apply that control, it does get out of hand. Mm. They get more dysregulated. They begin to escalate. They don't want to be controlled, right? No human does well with control. Mm. So that's fear, isn't it? Right. So you're talking about this fear that's underlying and that's driving that desire and I find it's just so often underneath fear is so often underneath all these kind of darker yes. <laughs> types of behavior that that we that we display as humans and that I just think you described that so well and it will be familiar to so many people um that yeah that that kind of desperation that takes over you and you just want them to to to, to not you know have a meltdown in public you know you want to be able to control them and I've never really been able to control my children very well <laughs> they have big big emotions um but but actually one thing that does interest me is that some families do seem to manage this and and this is something that I used to torture myself um looking at other families and other children you know that, that terrible thing of comparison that always is like a dark dark road to go down and I used to look at other families with children who seem to be extremely compliant and I used to look at how other people responded to those children and I used to feel a sort of sense of shame and why haven't I managed to achieve that and why does everybody think that those children are so much more worthy and valuable than my children who aren't really like that you know um and I think this is another thing of, of how we perceive parents and parenthood in society and you know if we carry on sort of really um admiring children who only behave a certain way it it puts a lot of pressure on on other parents whose children may be on <laughs> aren't quite like that it is true that we value as a society, you know, we, we, it starts when they're born. How many people ask you, oh, is he a good baby? Good. I'm like, aren't they all good? Oh, I mean, does he sleep? Well, it's like, he's going to, he's going to sleep or not sleep, but that doesn't make him a good or a bad baby. Know. <laughs> like, wow. It, are they good, right? Are they cooperative? Do they do what we want them to do? Not are they blossoming and, you know, learning new skills and, 
and becoming responsible people. No, are they good? Are they compliant? Are they compliant? Yeah. Do they do what they're told? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Are they, are they compliant? It seems to be so much weight on that. Yeah, I know. Another theme that I'm really interested in is listening and why listening is so important and so key, but a particular type of listening, like a deep sort of listening to your child and actually really being able to listen and get a sense of who they are. Because I think it, that's what I think one of our challenges as a parent is to fully see our children as who they are rather than versions of us, which is my, what we might want them to be. But actually, sometimes it's difficult to see your child. And, you know, like I always wanted my kids to be into music and, and play instruments because that's what I loved. But they don't like they just don't want to do that. And it, sometimes it's really hard to accept. But you have to try and sometimes fully see who are they and what what do they what are they telling me and what do they want? And again, why is that so difficult? <laughs> you know, I think it's natural that we want our children to have everything good we ever had and everything good we didn't get, right? And we try to give that to them and we try to have them be that person, right? Who, you know, um, you know, my husband messed around a lot in college and he was so, you know, our children, he would say to them all the time, every time they had to pick classes, you know, take an extra class, do, you know, don't mess around, do, and, you know, <laughs> like, okay, if you want to have a college career dad, go back and go to college again, but I'm going to decide what I want to do with my classes, right? I'm not going to be you. I just think that we have so much of our own stuff that's unfinished business in a yeah, way. Like stories. We, yeah. Yes, yes, stories that we, so we want them to make up for all the things yeah. that we didn't get or didn't do. And, and also all the things, you know, you say that you did music and your music was really important to you. And maybe, you know, if your children did that, it would, get even bigger, your dream, you know, would be realized, right? I, I think there's also a, that's very normal, but there's another darker side to that, which is that all of us have some pain from growing up, some pain of some kind. And if we don't work on that pain inside us, we perpetuate it on someone else. That's what happens to pain. The, the definition of, of violence, actually, the origin of violence in this world is, you know, if you have pain, if the definition of violence, I would say, is when someone has pain that they did not take responsibility for, and then it just gets perpetuated into the world mm -hmm. on other people, right? It's mm -hmm. the origin of all violence. So, you know, that's violence between countries. It's violence within communities. It's violence within families. And it's even the emotional overriding of another person. I wouldn't call that violence, but I would say when my husband tried to get my son to do certain things and, you know, that wasn't where my son's integrity was taking him. Mm. So I love that you're talking about it as a listening. Mm. Like my husband was too caught up in his own need that he hadn't finished some work inside himself that he couldn't really hear what my son was saying about what he wanted mm. to do, right? Mm. So I think in order to listen, we have to do our own work on ourselves so we can just show up and be present and and really hear what they're saying oh that's so true I think that's fascinating and and what you were saying about pain and how it 
it morphs and and that that's what you know that's kind of the origin of violence um is that what you think is kind of underlying um sort of you know the this the shootings that that you see you know occurring you know when you see teenagers you know the the atrocities that that they have committed and it, it can be so difficult to understand what is going on and and why those things are occurring do you think it's just like a sort of a build-up of pain of of, of trying you know through the generations being passed I, on I think that there is some way in which we pass on pain through mm-hmm. the generations there's no question about that and when we I've seen it over and over again that when a parent works through something and feels like that's done and they've let it go and they're past that, something lightens in them and something lightens in their child. It's interesting how that works. And we don't fully understand the intergenerational transmission um, of trauma and pain, but we know part of it's gene, it happens in your genes, part of it happens <laughs> in the cradle, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. part of it happens just in the things we say in our mm-hmm. worldview that's transmitted. Um, but the shootings you mentioned, Yes, of course, there's a tremendous amount of pain. Uh, and, you know, the, the United States, where, which is famous for its shootings, um, is a, it's, you know, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, but it is, it is spiritually impoverished. Mm. It's spiritually impoverished. And so um, we do not actually meet people's needs for intimacy and connection. We don't meet their needs for emotional wholeness, for being able to heal. We don't meet meet their needs for um, contribution. Every human wants meaning that comes from contribution. People are not actually born lazy and greedy. They become lazy, quote, lazy and greedy. I wouldn't even use those words. They become someone who's not contributing to the greater good out of a sense that if they don't, no one will take care of them. They have to take care of number one. And you know, people, as you said, are born tender and no one who is tender goes in and shoots up a classroom, right? And so those walls that get built around the heart that allow someone to pick up a gun and shoot someone, those walls, they come from somewhere, right? They come from what we do to people after they're born as a society, as a family, you know, what are we doing to our babies that allow them to grow into shooters? I I will add, um, There is pain all over the world, not just in the United States, but in the United States, there are a great number of guns. And if there weren't, you would not have this level of violence because, you know, in the UK, um, where the populace doesn't have guns, there are children in pain, there are teenagers in pain, but they're not shooting up their schools, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if we uh, simply took action there, it would change a lot of things because, you know, that pain, that one teenager's pain, is terrible and we, uh, we, we owe that teenager healing. But when that teenager walks into a classroom and shoots up their classmates, suddenly that pain just got magnified by factors of a thousand with all the families they just destroyed, right? So we don't have to let that happen if we don't have guns. Mm. So readily available. Oh, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. And I think pain I think is is a really interesting one and how we manage pain in in ourselves and in each other 
And I've heard you speak before about how we always have this tendency to want to give advice instantly Mm -hmm. to sort of jump in when we hear of another person's pain. That's often our sort of our first response. Um, Like we just want the pain to go away. And how what we really need to learn is, yeah, to listen and to be present with the pain. So to kind of to allow it to show up, to allow each other to feel it. Because it's, I think it's kind of almost, I think feelings are kind of almost seen as an inconvenience, actually, things that get in the way. And also pain, I think, is very scary um, to us. Um, So, And I think the more pain we're carrying, the harder it is to be there with someone else's pain. I'm thinking of a preschool teacher who described to me, she had a child who was dropped off by his parents. He was new in this preschool and he was sobbing. And one of the other children was staring at him and walked over. All the children were very concerned about him sobbing. And one of the other children, and the teacher was trying to comfort the child, but one of the other children walks up. He's just a little guy. He walks up and he's got these big eyes and he's looking at the other child and he hits him. (laughs) And the teacher's like, what did you hit him for? And then another child, she came up and she gave this child who was crying her blankie. Right. To comfort him. And the preschool teacher said to me, why why the difference in these two children? Mm. Is it a boy versus a girl? And I said, I don't think it's about gender. I think it's that that little boy, when he saw that degree of pain, it reminded him of when he'd felt like this, when he had felt that he was crying and his parents weren't there for him and had dropped him off or whatever, when somebody wasn't there for him and he was in pain and he couldn't bear seeing this reflection of what he had felt. He couldn't bear it. He you know, you know how we want to control. Well, he hit him to get him to stop crying. Mm. Maybe someone had even hit this little guy when he had cried. We don't know. But the other child who gave her blanket, she had been taken care of when she was in pain. So she was able to see his pain and be there with it in a, in a present way that said, I'll take care of you. I'll share what I have with you. Right. Mm. I, so I think if we can help heal, our, if we can heal our own pain, we can be there for someone. Mm. And if we can help others heal, they're they're more likely to be able to be there for each other. Mm. And how how should we do that? I mean, do you think that we as individuals just need to engage more in practices like journaling our emotions and 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 trying to have a meditation practice? And those- great question. Great question. I think the truth is that life sends us constant homework. (laughs) You know, if you think about your inbox, think about yesterday, think about the day before, think about all week. Mm. Anytime you were short-tempered, anytime you got annoyed, anytime you lost your temper and yelled, anytime you felt uncharitable or judgmental of anyone else, but also of yourself, right? That's all homework. Mm. And Many people listening to this might say, no, that's not homework for me to work on. My husband deserved me to be short-tempered with him. He was irresponsible about X, Y, Z. He didn't come through when he promised me. He would be home on time. Of course I was mad at him. Yes, the world will always give you things that you can respond to um, with a chip on your shoulder, feeling feeling shortchanged, feeling annoyed at. But some of us will look at those things and we'll have a much more emotionally generous response at, to- at times. 
all of us might be emotionally generous at times, but there will be times when we are short. Now, maybe we just didn't get enough sleep last night. That's, you know, if, again, if we don't have a full cup, we can't greet the world with emotional generosity. But I think the truth is that if there's something that pushes your buttons over and over again, that's something to work on. Mm. And you mentioned journaling. Journaling has been shown to be a great way to start working on something because it, um, it allows you to reflect. It, it, it engages the part of you that therapists would call the observing ego. But, you know, really it's, it's maybe the wiser part of you that's not emotionally invested and can just notice it. And I add, you, you mentioned working on self-compassion. I would add that journaling where you're ranting and raving against yourself, I can't believe I lost my temper, is not going to help. It's got to be journaling where you, your premise going in is that you're, you're worthy of your own love. And it's okay. You don't have to be perfect to merit that love. You're allowed to make mistakes and you're, you want to grow mm. and you want to grow in love for yourself, for yourself. So this is not an exercise in making yourself wrong. It's an exercise in increasing your love for yourself and noticing where you have choice points, where you might do something differently next time. And where do you get triggered? Where do you feel a sense of threat? You know, if your three-year-old is defiant, is that really a threat? So Yes, journaling is a great way. You mentioned meditation. I, I was in therapy a lot as a young person, a young adult, uh, before I ever had children. But I would say that the biggest changes in me have all come through meditation. I, I'm a meditator and have been for many years. And mm -hmm. I would say that's really where the, the tenderness and the sense of trust in the universe that allows that tenderness mm -hmm. and the self-compassion have mm -hmm. all come from. That's amazing. And I think what you're talking about is it's like a shift in the way that we perceive life. So mm. I think that sort of I was given a story growing up that, you know, the whole point of life was to avoid the obstacles and to try and just have everything turn out really well. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that actually, no, the point is that you have these things that come up and they're all trying to show you something and if they keep coming up they're really trying to tell you or show you something and yeah. it's about paying attention to these like signals and signs and difficulties and and rough spots and and actually then what can we make of this and, and how can we grow um, but I do feel again like that's an alternative narrative that's often seen as a hippie you know hippy dippy way of, of approaching the world but I I actually believe that if we can shift into seeing things more in that way then we can really like do the work on ourselves that you're talking about yes yes absolutely I love that and you know that that narrative that we were all brought up with I think um it basically was a narrative that said you know discomfort is bad mm. but actually when we're uncomfortable, often that's part of growing, right? So we don't want to be not growing. We don't want to be static. That Then you're, you might as well be dead, right? The, the point is actually to keep growing and um, growing in love, as I mentioned, it, growing in understanding and compassion. Um, I, I believe one of our purposes here is to bring more love into the world. Mm. And we can only do that if we keep growing and mm. um and really, you know, love does come out of 
Well, when you take an, an example, like when I was with my daughter, there was no love in the room at that moment. And I chose to bring some in. Yeah. And we have those choices every day. And they're tiny, tiny little inflection points. But the more we do it, we're, we are creating more love or at least letting more love into the world through something. And, and you know, as we do that, I think we're also changing our own wiring. Mm. Because when we experience more love, we know it makes us happier. There's, there's this research on uh, loving kindness meditation. So loving kindness meditation is a form of meditation where you send love into the world, right? Mm. And there's a whole little, you know, thing, which we don't have to go into the details of, but you're sending love. And I do a version of that when I walk down the street in New York City, or when I sit on a subway car, where I just send love to people. And what I notice is, I can be in a bad mood. If mm. I walk out of my house in a bad mood, I immediately start sending love to people. Within three minutes, I'm in a great mood. These people may or may not know I'm sending love to them, right? It doesn't matter. They may see me smile with them, they may not. Doesn't matter, right? I'm in a great mood. Why am I in a great mood? Because I'm feeling love. When we're feeling love, we're, uh, we may be putting more love out into the universe. Who knows? We don't know about that. But I'm certainly feeling more love inside myself. And we know that changes your body chemistry and your brain chemistry and your neural wiring. Mm -hmm. So we are creating more happiness for ourselves simply by choosing love mm -hmm. in those moments. I think I'd love to be sitting in a subway car with you. <laughs> I think you, you radiate that. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to talk, sort of, we're sort of moving towards the end now, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about sort of mental health. And I, so my, my older daughter um, has struggled with anxiety for, for a few years now. And um, also in the, you know, the interviews I've done on here so far, two people that I've interviewed have talked about their anxiety and the medication that they're taking now for anxiety. And is part of why I want to have these conversations because it it feels like it's getting to be almost like an epidemic of anxiety in our world and uh, I just I, I I think I wish I could see a way through it and I know because you know I know intimately through you know conversations I have with my daughter that sometimes you know I I'm, I'm very optimistic and I she gets angry with me as though she feels I'm dismissing her feelings or, you know, you think that just cause I, I can think positively and these feelings will go away, but this is like real, this is anxiety. This is something else. Um, and yeah, I, I was talking to her last night about her feelings, her difficult feelings. And I was sort of trying to say what we've just been talking about, how, you know, you may well have these feelings throughout your life, but, actually that's okay and that feels like quite a difficult thing to say because I think what we want is for like with all these difficult feelings for them to go away and I, I don't want to dismiss anyone who takes medication for anxiety and, and maybe she will you know also go down that path but what I was trying to say was it's like all these difficult things in life you know I'm, I'm not dismissing any of them and I have firsthand had very difficult experiences of grief um and I know how how difficult you know difficult feelings are and can be but also I just really want to say it it's it's part of 
all of it like it's part of the experience of life and um so with her anxiety she said I just want to be like a normal person and I don't want to have this anymore and I want to be like able to just be confident and relaxed in situations and yeah I I just kept on saying you know you, you can work on this and you might feel like this more sometimes than others and you know but sometimes it's difficult to know what to say you know yes yes I I think you're right. There's an epidemic of anxiety in children and in adults in our right now. Um, And I think that some amount of anxiety is a natural state for humans because the human mind is always like worried about what's going to happen next, right? There's no certainty and life is uncertain, right? We know that we know that more now than we've ever understood it, right? Mm -hmm. And after the events of the last year, you know, Gabor Mate says, as long as you don't allow the fear to be there, you're always going to be working to get rid of it. Mm. And anxiety is just fear, right? Mm. So we, what happens with anxiety is we, we start to notice, right? And that's, that's why we spoke about threat earlier. That's those signals coming in that are threat. So it might be that we're perceiving the situation. Oh, everybody at this party is staring at me. I just walked in and I have social anxiety and everybody's staring at me. That And so the, I'm, my brain has just, it's not really true they're staring at me, but I've perceived it that way. So the brain feels threat and it sends the body a message. We got a threat here, fight, flight, or freeze. Well, the body starts to rev up. The body gets adrenaline and cortisol and you start to sweat and your heart starts to pound. You're hyperventilating. This is all in preparation for running from that tiger or fighting off the robber. But you're in a social situation where it's not helpful. But now what has just happened? Now that the body feels all this, it's, there's a feedback loop both directions. So the body is sending a message to the brain saying, we got a problem here. We're sweating. We're hyperventilating. There must be some danger here. And then the brain goes, okay, we were right. There's danger. And it starts to escalate and spiral out of control. And before you know it, you've got a full-blown panic attack going, right? Yeah. Yep. So this is what anxiety does. Anxiety feeds on itself with those feedback loops. But here's the really great news. It doesn't have to. Because those same feedback loops can be interrupted and used to reassure your nervous system. But you have to start by accepting the fear. If you try to, you know, the minute you walk into that party and everybody, you think everyone's looking at you. If you say, nope, no one's looking at me, it's all fine. Some party is going, no, you're, you're ignoring the danger. There's real danger here, right? So you can't just ignore it. You can't just squash, you can't fight anxiety. You can't numb it. You can't pretend it's not there. You can't push it away. What you have to do is normalize it. Of course, anxiety is showing up. It's trying to look after me. It knows I get a little worried in social situations. It's trying to make sure I'm okay. That's what anxiety is doing. My worry, of course, it's going to show up here. It's trying to keep me safe. It's okay to feel a little awkward when I first walk in. It's fine. I can take some deep breaths and send my brain, my body. I'm going to take some deep breaths because I can control my breathing to some degree. I'm going to send because, you know, if there were really a tiger or a robber, you would not be stopping to take deep breaths, right? So you're, you take these deep breaths and these people are doing whatever they're doing at the party, but you've turned away and you're pretending you're taking off your jacket and you're taking deep breaths. And meanwhile, what's happening inside you with the feedback loop? 
your body is taking deep, long breaths. You're lingering on the out breath, which calms you down actually. Um, you, you can even take a breath, hold your nose and breathe out without really letting out the air and let it go. And that actually has the effect. It's called the Valsalva maneuver, I think. And it, it actually has the effect mm-hmm. of settling your nervous system. There are all kinds of little tricks you can use. You can go like this, tapping. You know, there, there are many little things you can do, breathing. But the more you practice any of these when you're calm, the better they work in that moment of stress. So all of this, your body is sending now in the feedback loop, the message to the brain, I guess it's really okay. We're, we don't have a problem here. And the guys downstream in charge of the cortisol and the adrenaline, they're going, Hey, no tiger, no robber, shut off the adrenaline guys, shut off the cortisol. It's cool. She's fine. It's just a party, you know? And right. So you have interrupted that feedback loop, but you did have to acknowledge Mm. you're not avoiding because, you know, when you feel anxious, no amount of telling yourself it's okay is going to work when you're feeling. Because when you feel that way, you, your body says, oh my God, there's a robber, there's a tiger. We've got to run, right? So from the point of view of fear, you could not have a high enough wall. You're, and that's why when you give fear an inch, it takes a mile, right? If you, if you don't go to parties anymore, then after a while, you can't even go to the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. Like you start, you give fear an inch, it starts to, you know, because from the point of view of fear, it's happiness is not on the agenda. It's just build that wall higher to keep you safe, right? But from the point of view of presence, of compassion for yourself, of love, choosing love instead. In some ways, every choice is about fear or love. I'm going with the love. Okay, love for me, right? It's just love. And from the point of view of love, there's no wall that's necessary. You're not actually in danger. You can cultivate trust. So I do think you empathize with your daughter. You say, I hear how worried you are about this. I hear how anxious you feel. And, you know, we can try to prepare for that party. You can think in advance of what you can do to help yourself feel better, but it's okay to feel a little nervous, a little anxious, you know? It's okay to not know exactly how it'll unfold because you know what? Worry, your worries will always come up with something to scare you, Mm -hmm. but you actually can handle it, sweetheart, no matter what. I know you don't feel like you can because you're worried, Mm -hmm. but you handled this thing and you handled that thing and you handled that thing. Yeah, and it's amazing how often people with anxiety are actually also extremely high achievers. Yes. She is. And as some people I've interviewed for the podcast already, extremely high achievers, you know, showing up in the world, you know, know, on on the BBC in, you know, very high profile jobs. Um, Yet, you know, really struggling with with anxiety as well. so it's really interesting. So what you're saying is it's sort of almost like normalizing it. So it's sort of mm-hmm. telling yourself, you know, this feeling, you know, it's almost expected that I, this is going to come up. It's a party. It's okay. Yeah. And then it's the, the thoughts around that feeling. So it's like all those difficult thoughts that you're telling yourself, oh, you know, I'm feeling bad, but I shouldn't be, or all those people are looking at me. It's, it's kind of being aware of what's going on in your mind. Noticing. Yeah. I I call it the three ends, the three ends of fear, of handling fear. You notice it. You notice the whole, uh, you know, spiraling out of control thing, the thoughts spiraling out of control, the notice it, normalize it. It's fine. It's going to, of course it's here. Hi fear. Thought you'd come with me. (laughs) Of course you're here trying to keep me safe. Thank you fear. And then the third end, not stopping me. 
Mm. Not stopping me. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. Feel the fear. It's fine to feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. And every time you do that, you build confidence, mm. right? We're not trying to raise humans who don't feel fear or anxiety. We're trying to raise humans who develop confidence in themselves that whatever happens, whatever life throws at them, they are going to handle it because the truth is they will handle it. They do handle it. Mm. I know that's the thing. I think it's, it's just like a real contradiction. It's like, I can do so much, but I'm so scared, but I can do so much, but I'm so scared. Yeah. Well, I think you have to go through the discomfort. Mm. If, if your daughter didn't have the experience of encountering the discomfort at the party, let's say, and handling it, then she wouldn't know she could do that, would she? What we're doing is retraining our brain. Mm. No, it wasn't, the amygdala was blaring these alarms. Problem, problem, threat, threat. But actually it turned out it wasn't a yeah. problem. It wasn't a threat. It was scary, but it was fine. She even talked to a couple people, let's say. And when you leave that party, you're like, okay, it wasn't an emergency and I handled it. Next time I'll still feel scared, but I have a little more confidence and the brain and nervous system doesn't go to threat quite so quickly next time. Absolutely. And it's like talking about it in that way afterwards, like, yeah, but look what you did. And, you know, you managed to speak to those people and aren't you glad that you went, you know, having those conversations and yeah. reinforcing those kind of new neural pathways, I guess. I think um, that's right. And it, but it isn't lecturing them. It's, it's, it's letting them experience it and learn from reflecting on their experience. Right. Yeah. And encouraging and nurturing and, and, keep having those experiences and I'll be here. Yeah. I'll be here for you. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you started this with empathy. Empathizing is hard, you know, and listening is hard, but if someone's expressing to you how scared they feel about this social event, you absolutely empathize with that's normal to feel scared. Of course you feel scared. That's normal to feel scary. It doesn't feel good. I know you wish you could just be like some of those people who love to be the life of the party who storm in and take the stage in the room. And, you know, you wish you could be like that. I understand, sweetie, you know, and that's not who you are, how you feel, but you can actually intervene with how you feel and you can grow in being able to tolerate the discomfort. So you feel less of it. Mm. Absolutely. And you're you and I, you know, you wouldn't want to be different. Yes, that other person. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Oh, I can't tell you, Dr. Laura, how much I have enjoyed speaking to you. I just really felt we've really connected and it's just been such an amazing and really heart opening and such a an in, really enlightening um, discussion. And I, I really wanted to finish with um, a question that I ask all the guests at the end. Um, so the tenderness revolution is this quality of tenderness for ourselves and others. And I came up with a concept by thinking about these three C's that are behind this quality of tenderness. So for me, these three C's enable us to sort of fully see the truth about the way things are. So they're courage, compassion and curiosity. And mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, if you had to choose one of these sort of qualities that really shows up the most in your life, which one would you choose? Mm. Mm. Well, I'd say compassion is my MO. You know, it's what I do all day, every day with parents because parents 
so need mm. to be loved and accepted and appreciated and admired mm. and encouraged. Yeah. So I, compassion is what I do. And, and I'm always still trying to grow in compassion and to notice if I'm, if I have a judgmental thought about myself or anyone else, I try to notice it and, and have an antidote of compassion there. But I love the idea of courage and I love the idea of curiosity. And I think, I think they're all three so important. And that if we were more curious, we would be with our children, let's say, we would be less controlling and more compassionate, mm -hmm. right? If we were just, oh, I wonder why she's acting like that right now rather than stop acting like that, right? Mm -hmm. If we were more curious mm -hmm. and also courageous. You know, you mentioned feeling like other people were judging your parenting. Mm -hmm. I think we, we have an inner compass. We know, mm -hmm. we know what our child needs. We can't always do it because we're human, but let's have our inability to do it be that we're still growing not and not that somebody looked at us in the supermarket wrong you know mm -hmm. because we our responsibility is to our child not that person in the supermarket looking at us judgmentally so i think having the courage to act based on our own inner compass is also such an important part of this i love all three of those words Absolutely. Oh, thank you. I love your response. And I've, I've loved all your answers. It's been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you again for being on the tenderness revolution. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I have loved having a chance to talk about these ideas with you, which are so important for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll, we'll end it there, but thank you so much again. I've, oh, I feel so um, grateful <laughs> to have actually been able to speak to you face to face and glean all your wonderful knowledge. You know, it's, it's really very much of a privilege. And Aisha, Aisha's here. Do you want to come and say hi? <laughs> Aisha's been in the background hi. all this time. I'm always hi, Aisha. Glad to meet you. Thanks for doing the production on this. Yes. No, it was great. I was listening in on all of it. And you had so many amazing things to say. I have two young nieces and I just kept thinking about them the whole time. I'm like, oh, I wish I could just tell everything she just said to my my sister-in-law and my brother. <laughs> yeah. And I really think so many people are going to really find what you've said so helpful and yeah. so so powerful. moving and powerful yeah. yeah I think we kind of went underneath some of the things that are often talked about in relation to parenting and that's what I'm sort of trying to do is get underneath things you know and what are the, the emotions driving um, a lot of these difficult situations and behaviors and I really appreciate you doing that with me it was it was really good yeah it was <laughs> thank you for taking the time out I know that you're busy yeah so. I really appreciate your time thank you my pleasure please let us know when this is going to air yeah we um, we're we're expecting to launch in september so we'll keep you posted with all the links um i'm following you on instagram so i'll make sure i tag you on everything as we start launching episode by episode yeah great my assistant beth is the one who handles all of that so she's the right person to talk to and in fact she will ask me this um if you don't mind sharing the recording there will be little snippets that she will just pull out to use to for promotion yeah, yeah sure yeah yeah sounds perfect oh have a fantastic Thank day you. really enjoy it's a pleasure to meet you both and um i'm sure we'll meet again i hope so i really love talking to you okay. take care, take care. You. bye bye
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenderness Revolution. I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us